Uh, so we're in the middle of a year-long series on our tagline, Dig In, Branch Out, Live It Up. Earlier in the year, we studied Dig In, Digging Into Jesus by looking at the book of Colossians. And we did that up till Easter. And now since Easter and all the way through early June, uh, we are looking at a variety of different uh, opportunities we have to engage with our culture. How do we branch out? How do we share the gospel in a relevant way with other folks? So we've been thinking topically. And we've been looking at and studying a variety of different topics uh, that are, are important in our generation, are crucial to our day and age, uh, are on the front burner, so to speak, uh, because as Christians, we're called to be in the world. We're called to be ready to share our faith with others, and you can't do that in a vacuum. Uh, you do that in the context of the culture in which we live. So this morning, we're going to begin a two-week portion of this uh, of this series, and we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about human sexuality. The reason I picked this Sunday is because I knew the Blues would still be in the playoffs, <laughs> and I knew you'd be distracted unless I picked a topic where everybody just kind of, their heads just kind of whipped around real quick, and everybody kind of sat up and said, I don't believe I've ever heard about sex in church. Well, this morning might be the first, but this is clearly a topic whose scope is across every culture, but in particular ours. Uh, the other uh, thing we're going to do this evening, if you would like to come back at 6.30, I'm going to record the Blues game so that I can watch it when I get home. But we'll be in here at 6.30 this evening because there's no way in two sermons you can answer every question and cover every aspect of this topic. So if you'd like to come tonight, you know, grab a Starbucks coffee across the street, come on over, uh, and we're going to just kind of do a Q&A time and talk about a variety of different applications, a variety, a variety of different questions that arise uh, with this topic. But if we're going to branch out, if we're going to make an impact in our culture, then certainly this is a topic that we need to examine. So the question before the house this morning is this, is there a correct expression of human sexuality? Is there a, uh, a right or a wrong when it comes to our sexuality? Uh, I would say it depends upon who you ask. If you live in North America, if you live in the United States, or you live in Canada, or you live in Europe, for example, uh, the key there would be tolerance. The notion that really drives those particular cultures is individual, uh, excuse me, individual freedom and the right to choose to express your sexuality in whichever way you determine. That's, that's for you to decide. And freedom and the ability to make that choice is really what is valued above all else. Now, if you live in the Middle East or you live in large portions of Africa and you stand on a street corner and you espouse that and you begin to talk about the type of sexuality that ought to be free to be expressed in that culture, you could get killed. You could get beaten. You could get in prison because the highest value there is not a free expression of sexuality, but rather a, a, a guideline and a, a set of rules that are going to govern all of that culture. And so you have large portions of the world's population that have radically different opinions about this topic. Part of our struggle in North America is we have, have bought into the notion that we're the end-all, be-all on pretty much every conversation that's out there, and that simply isn't true. We have an opinion, and it's man's opinion. The United States, for example, disavows the practice of polygamy. That's one of the things in our culture that, that seems to be taboo, but over a third of the world's population believes that polygamy is just fine. 
There's absolutely nothing wrong with having multiple marital partners. Sexual expression in our culture, we use words like free and liberated. But others around the world would hear those words in the context of our sexuality, and they would use words like corrupted and vile. So I come back to my original question. Who's right? Is there a right or a wrong? And quite frankly, why should it matter to disciples of Jesus? Well, before we dig into this, let's spend a moment praying, asking that God would open our hearts and our minds to what he wants to teach us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, that it speaks into every area of our lives. I've heard people say that the Bible's outdated, that it doesn't uh, cover modern topics, that it isn't at all practical in our generation. And yet, as we will see this morning, as we see quite often uh, on Sundays at Green Tree, you, you speak to the very heart of mankind in every generation at every moment. We can't outthink you. We can't outwit you. We can't come up with something to which you do not speak. Father, you speak because you love us. You care for us. You don't speak as a tyrant. You don't speak as a harsh taskmaster. You don't speak as one who is obsessed with his way simply out of pride and arrogance. You are the God of gods. You are the the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet you loved us enough to come and to take on human flesh, to live in this world and to suffer and die to pay for our sins. So as your word speaks, it speaks out of grace and out of compassion. Father, often what your word says is in conflict with what I think, what we think. We have chosen to go our own way, and in many respects, we don't want to hear your word. And I don't know if this is one of those topics that that may be under that heading this morning or not. There certainly are a lot of opinions about human sexuality. There certainly are a lot of ideas floating around out there. But they are just that. They're man's ideas, and therefore they're limited in scope and understanding. Father, we need to hear your universal and eternal truth. What I have to say on this topic is irrelevant. It is not important. It's not worth our time. What you say is worth everything. So, Father, we pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to us this morning. Lord Jesus, come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. So the sermon in a sentence this morning, and if you're new, we, we kind of do this, uh, when I'm preaching, I do this, I try to give you an idea of where we're going throughout the whole time in the, in the morning and try to condense it. So the sermon in a sentence this morning is, disciples of Jesus base their understanding of human sexuality on scripture, not on the ever-changing opinions of their culture, okay? So this is a fundamentally important point that you get right off the bat. It's important that you understand it. I'm not suggesting that understanding is the same as agreeing. But everything else I'm going to say from here falls under the authority of Scripture. It comes from the Bible. And so it's important that you understand that, that that what we're teaching here is not just one other opinion about what some folks might think. Rather, we're coming straight out of Scripture. I want to tell you a little bit about what the Bible says about itself. So again, you may not agree, but you'll understand. In 1 Timothy, in a letter that a guy named the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor, he said this, all scripture is breathed out by God, is exhaled by God. 
and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, woman as well, may be complete, equipped for every good work. The key that I want you to see there this morning, we could, we could do a couple sermons just on that verse, but the key I want you to see this morning is the source of Scripture is God himself. The Bible claims that God spoke these words into the author's minds, and as they wrote, God directed their writing. Therefore, the scriptures are God's word. So if Jesus walked in here this morning and he said, Tom, can I borrow your pulpit for a few minutes? The first thing we'd all say is emphatically, yes, that would be just fine. And then whatever he shared would not be in any way conflicting with what you read in this book. It would be the same thing because it is his word. Let me give you one other verse. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, that being God's, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Again, there the emphasis that we want you to see is the word of God, that its intention that its purpose is to divide and, and discern our thoughts, to give us the tool by which we can understand our own lives and the world around us. Now, that is our view of Scripture. And you may be here this morning and say, Tom, I don't believe that about the Bible, and that's perfectly fine. I, I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you would come and, and spend some time with, with uh, some teaching with which you may not agree. That, that shows a lot of character on your part. But it's important that you understand that that's what Scripture claims. And at Green Tree, that's what we believe. We believe that the Bible speaks authoritatively so that we don't judge decisions in our lives, and not just human sexuality, but our money, our, our spare time, our vocation how we raise our children, how we grow up as children. All of those things, our marriages, all of those things fall under the directive voice of Scripture. That being the case, what does the Bible have to say about human sexuality? Well, let me take you back, and we're going to go through a lot of verses this morning. If you have a Bible, um, you, you may just want to kind of follow along on the screen because we're going to bounce around uh, quite a bit. But we're going to start out this morning in the book of Genesis, and we're going to kind of look at the, the, the character of God uh, from a macro level and also from a micro level. The first thing I want to point out is that God demonstrates his goodness to his people in every aspect of creation, in every aspect of creation. God demonstrates his goodness, that he loves and cares for the people whom he created. He didn't wind up, you know, he's not the clockmaker who wound it up and set it over there and then went and busied himself somewhere else. But that God's primary concern in creation was providing a home for you and for me to lovingly care for his people. So let's look at what scripture says about our beginnings in Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and fruit. You shall have them for food 
and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath and life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, morning, the sixth day. Quick pop quiz if you're paying attention. What are the first words that God spoke to mankind? What's the first thing God ever talked about when he talked to people? Very first thing he talked about. Salvation? Grace? Mercy? So I I know you wouldn't normally say this word in church, but okay, what did he talk about? What's the very first thing he said? Talked about sex, right? Multiply, okay? Now, we're all adults here. We all know how that happens. God is the author of human sexuality. The very first thing God says to mankind is enjoy one another physically. Be fruitful and multiply. God is the God who has created this for a blessing for mankind. Remember, God demonstrates his goodness to his people in every aspect of creating uh, in creation, including our sexuality. So God said, I want you to go and enjoy one another in so many ways, spiritually, emotionally, but I want you to enjoy each other physically. Can you imagine Adam and Eve, and we're going to come to to their part of this in the first second. Can you imagine hearing that? The main thing you need to go do is go and be sexually active with one another. Well, if you tell me I gotta, I guess I will. There's a guy's answer for you, right, ladies? Okay. I remember when, you know, when, when Nathan, uh, we found out that we were pregnant with Nathan, we hadn't planned that one. And that's even saying that is a bit of a, a misnomer. You know, it's, that's not an accident, those things, you know. Um, but I remember when we, when we decided we wouldn't have our second child. And, you know, Cindy said, we need to start trying to get pregnant. I went, well, I guess I got a few minutes. Now, I'm not trying to be crude here, friends, okay? What I want, you, what I want us to understand is the beauty of our sexuality is a gift from God. And the desire that we have to express ourselves sexually was created by God, not by mankind. And notice what it says in, in, in verse 28, right? Be, God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? Okay. But then what does God say about his entire creation in verse 31? And behold, it was very good, right? So God looked at everything he created including our sexuality. And he went, well, that's a masterpiece right there. I I, I, I might just pat myself on the back. I did a great job with all of that. God looked at it. He said, this is exactly how it should be. So there's the macro picture of a God who's creating a world in which he places us out of love and joy and and, and for our, our, our relationship with him and for one another. But let's look at the micro picture for just a minute. Let, let's look. So Genesis 1 is a macro picture of creation. Genesis 2 tells the same story again. It just does it from a different angle. And it kind of takes it down and it makes it a little bit more personal. Okay. So in the micro picture, we see that God makes man and woman for perfect expression of human sexuality. In Matthew, excuse me, Genesis 2, it says this. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone, right? Now, there's a, there's, there's a true statement right there. Not good for guys to be alone. I did a, saw a study one time that said how long it took the average 10-year-old boy, if he's left alone to get in trouble, it was like eight seconds, you know, for him to do something wrong, right? So God was obviously aware of this. I'll make a helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs 
and closed up the place of the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man and said to the man, excuse me, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. God made us man and woman for the perfect expression of human sexuality. So when I hear modern critics say that God is mean-spirited, that God is oppressive, that God is fun-hating and a narrow-minded curmudgeon, I say, really? I I don't believe you've ever actually sat down and, and seen what God has said about himself. Adam's response here is very telling. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now we read that in the English, right? And you read that and it's pretty benign, right? I mean, ladies, if your gentleman saw you walking into the room and he said that, you would probably go, wow, gee, what a hopeless romantic, right? That's because you don't speak ancient Hebrew. If you spoke ancient Hebrew and your, and your, and your boyfriend or your husband or, or a gentleman looked at you and said that to you, you would recognize the look in his face and you would blush. That is a highly erotic statement. What Adam is saying there is, Lord, thank you. It's now time for the honeymoon. Would you please leave? All right? He couldn't wait to express his sexuality with her. There was something about her that drove him absolutely bonkers. And this is it. At last, I've been naming all these stupid animals, right? I've been naming the chinchilla, right? I've been naming the, you know, the turtles and the, you know, now here's somebody like me, but, but different, but like me, but special. And I'm feeling a little bit weird. I'm, you know, and I'm not sure. Oh, bye Lord. Thanks. We got it from here. This is a statement of romance, of passion, of desire. And who made Adam to think that way? God did. And notice it didn't say, the next verse doesn't say, and Eve said, sorry, honey, I had a headache. (laughs) Right? It says they were naked and they felt no shame that they enjoyed one another physically. And Adam said, this is why, this is why you leave home. You think about leaving home, leaving your family, leaving, leaving your kin, leaving the people that raised you, leaving the people that have poured themselves into your lives, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your grandmas, right? But you leave them all. Why? Because there she is, the one you've been waiting for. I remember the best and worst day of my life, right? When I walked my daughter down the aisle, right? And dads who have done this, right? It's a, it's a great day if, if you like the guy. Of course, if you didn't like him, he probably wouldn't have survived that day. But I remember looking at Richard, who, who's my son-in-law now. And I just got back from spending a week with him. And they're, they're just doing wonderfully. But I remember looking down the aisle at Richard. And I remember loving him, thinking, he's a great guy. He really cherishes my daughter. He's really going to be good for her. And I remember at the same time looking at his eyes, looking at her. And I hated him. <laughs> you look at my daughter that way. He wasn't looking at my daughter. He was looking at his bride. He was looking at the woman that God had made to be a partner with him. And she was looking at him the same way. We we, we, We can understand that. In the micro picture that God gives us of creation, he gives us this picture of of this perfect expression 
of our human sexuality. And then we went and we messed it all up. Our first parents blew it and they, and they sinned against God and they rebelled. And they said, God, we, we, we understand what you want us to do, but we're going to go in an opposite direction. And what happens when, when people rebel? What happens when, when people turn their backs on others? Well, when we experience that, if someone rebels against us, whether it's a child or, or a friend or whatever, we tend to say, well, okay, then I'm just going to keep you at arm's length. And now I'm, I can't trust you and I can't be in a relationship with you. And, and, I, and I don't know that I want to be around you. When someone rebels against us, when someone hates us, we tend to create distance. What does God do? God immediately begins to pursue. God immediately begins to draw us back to himself. And the entire Bible is simply a picture of God's redemption, of God drawing us back to himself like a lover draws their strange lover back to themselves. We have this picture in all of scripture. So what does God do immediately? He begins to remind a fallen and broken people of the appropriate expression of their sexuality. And he begins to warn them that if you get outside of these parameters, it's going to hurt you. If you don't listen to me, if you don't, if you don't trust me in this, there's going to be a struggle for you. So we have the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples this morning. There are, there are over a dozen or so other examples of how God cares for his people to, in the point of saying, be careful about how you express your sexuality because it can be a beautiful thing or it can be an incredibly dangerous and harmful thing. So just one example, a couple of examples out of Leviticus, God reminds us people that marriage is supposed to be between two married people and not a married person and somebody that isn't their spouse. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, so make yourself unclean. God reminds us people in Leviticus that, that our sexuality is to be expressed between a man and a woman. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In Deuteronomy, God takes it even one step further. In this passage I'm going to read for you, God thinks about a young woman who is in a, in a remote location because the, the is, people of Israel lived in an agrarian society, right? And she might be accosted by someone who wants to take advantage of her physically. If a man meets a young woman in the open country and seizes her and lies with her, the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense. It is like a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Though the young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Do you hear the passion and the kindness and the justice of God? Men, if you take advantage of a woman, your life is forfeit. That's how much I care for, for the women I have created. And so God's very careful to put his parameters. Even after our rebellion, God stays faithful. And he confirms his design for a healthy expression of human sexuality. So a couple of takeaways here. We're going we're to turn the page in a second and say, what did Jesus have to say about this? But a couple of, of takeaways right here. The first is this. God is the designer of human sexuality. Therefore, as the designer, he has the final say on how it works. It's not our culture. It's not the culture in Middle East or China or Russia. It's not what... Sigmund Freud came up with doesn't, you know, a hundred or so years ago. It's, it's not what more modern researchers think they've come up with in more recent times. It's not mankind's to define. We don't own it. It belongs to God. And God is the designer is the one who understands it best and wants it used for its best purposes. You never met somebody who, who, who built something who wanted to be, to be used in the wrong way that would destroy it or destroy the, the people around it, right? So here's God as the designer. He has the last say, so to speak, on the instruction manual. Secondly, God is not anti-sex. God is anti what hurts mankind, right? 
That's what the cross is a picture of, is it not? What hurts mankind? What hurts mankind is our own rebellion, right? What hurts me is my own sin, not your sin. I mean, your sin can have ripple effects and hurt me, but what separates me from God is my own rebellion. It's my own sinfulness. It's my own brokenness. And what God has done through the cross is he's pursued me and he's redeemed me through the blood of Christ. He cares about us. So God is, is not against sexuality. He's against what hurts mankind. So I've been doing a lot of reading the last uh, few months and a lot of writing uh, on this particular topic just to try to kind of you know, sift through everything because there's a lot here. came across an amazing article by a guy named Paul McCune. Paul McCune is a doctor. For 40 years, he's a university distinguished service professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. 26 years of those of which was also spent as a psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So he's a smart guy. He spent uh, a lot of time examining the question of transgenderism. Uh, And I want to just read a couple of of notes that he provided as he uh, is, if there's an expert in this field, it's him, right? At Johns Hopkins, he said, after pioneering sex change surgery, we demonstrated that the practice brought no important benefits. As a result, we stopped offering that form of treatment in the 1970s. I didn't even know that anybody was even thinking about this in the 1970s. And here are the guys at John Hops, Johns Hopkins, and they've done enough to say, we think we're actually hurting our patients and not helping our patients. He goes on to explain a little bit about why. He goes, let us address the basic assumption of the contemporary parade, the idea that exchange of one sex is possible. It is like the storied emperor. It is starkly, nakedly false. Transgendered men do not become women, nor do transgendered women become men. All become feminized men or masculized women, counterfeits or impersonators of the sex with which they identify. In that lies their problematic future. You would read that first part of it and you go, you know, that sounds a little bit on the self-righteous side. It sounds again, you know, again, we live in a, uh, in a culture where we say, well, who are you to tell us? Why can't we judge for self? Who is he to kind of say this? But notice that he says, in this lies their problematic future. He, he cares about his patients. And here's what he said next. When the tumult and the shouting dies, it proves not easy nor wise to live in a counterfeit sexual garb. The most thorough follow-up on sex-reassigned people extending over 30 years and conducted in Sweden where the culture is strongly supportive of the transgender documents their lifelong mental unrest. 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who have undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that compatible with their peers. I come back to what I said a moment ago. Paul McHugh is not the only one who is against what hurts mankind. God is not anti-sex. God is against that that will destroy us. The question we have to ask ourselves, if, if, if God loves us enough to tell the truth, will we listen? Will we hear his voice? Will we hear his compassion and his mercy? Or will we insist on our own way? God has blessed us with a gift of human sexuality. But he's also blessed us with parameters for its use. And he calls all disciples of Jesus to trust in his goodness. Well, what about Jesus? What did he have to say about human sexuality? Three passages. We'll uh, try to move this along. 
the Pharisees come to Jesus one day, the religious leaders of his day, and they say, hey, is it okay for a guy to divorce his wife for any reason under the sun, right? So she burned my toast this morning, I'd like to divorce her. Is that okay, right? And Jesus says, haven't you read the Bible? I love that answer, right? You guys are supposed to be the religious guys. Have you not even read the Bible, okay? Not read that he from, created them from the beginning, made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus endorses God's original intent for human sexuality. Secondly, Jesus confirms that God doesn't give us a moving target in, in any aspect of his moral law. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You don't have to wonder what God's thinking about your sexuality. You don't have to wonder if you, if, if you, it's okay for you to practice a heterosexual relationship outside of the bounds of marriage. You don't have to ask that question. God's already said that's going to be hurtful for you. The same is true of a homosexual relationship. You don't have to ask that question. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted by it. We're going to come to that next week. It's really important that you bear with me and come back next Sunday, if you would, because we're going to get into the, to the real practical application of how we live this out in our lives. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we won't face sexual temptation of all different kinds. In fact, Scripture makes it very clear we will. The sin is not in the temptation. But Jesus says, don't think that I'm just moving the law aside. Don't just think that I've come and said, now anything you want to do is okay. What loving parent would say to their child who, who, who doesn't understand everything the adult understands, go out and play with the street and I hope you miss the cars, right? That person's a villain. If you know somebody's going to hurt somebody and you don't tell them that, how is that loving? Well, they just wanted to do it their own way. Yeah, but weren't you responsible as the person who understood and knew what was best to at least warn them? Well, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. God loves you a whole lot more than that. God's love is not self-centered. God's not primarily concerned with your reaction to him to the extent that he won't tell you what you need to hear. God's worried about my soul. He's worried about your soul. He wants to spend eternity with us. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, don't worry. It's not going to be a floating target. All right? So, so social ideas come and social ideas go, but God's word's going to remain consistent. And then he reminds his church in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks directly to, to his church and he says, remember that sexual immorality is, is a bad deal. I have a few things against you, he says uh, to the church. You have there, some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And by the way, that term sexual immorality is both heterosexual and homosexual. So also you have some to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which were promoting sexual immorality. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus reminds his people post his ascension to heaven that all sexual immorality is sinful and therefore is harmful to them. That's what we have to keep coming back to. God is not trying to rain on the picnic. God is trying to protect his children. So what we see in the words of Jesus is exactly what we see 
in the rest of Scripture. So how do we think biblically on this topic? And this is where we're going to kind of begin to turn the corner to application. We're not going to go all the way there because I need another 35 minutes or so next Sunday and a Q&A tonight to try to try to tackle all of this. But let's just talk about first and foremost how to think biblically. I want to give you three examples of this and we'll wrap up. We must know and value the word of God. The psalmist says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's just a small section of Psalm 119 that over and over again celebrates the word of God. How much time did I spend this week with my phone and or my laptop as opposed to my Bible? I'm not trying to throw rocks at anybody. I'm not trying to make this a superficial, just do this and everything will be okay. But brothers and sisters, if we don't know the word of God, we're in trouble. We will be blown about by every wind that comes our way. We need to understand the scripture in a deep level, including on this topic of human sexuality. I was um, surprised, and I will admit I was disappointed uh, a year or so ago when the Supreme Court ruling came out on gay marriage, the number of people who I believe are strong followers of Jesus who celebrated that decision. That shows an ignorance of the Word of God or disregard for it. And it shows that you don't really care about people that are making those kinds of decisions because that's not a loving thing to do to tell somebody this could, this could potentially hurt you. God wants to protect you, but I, I'm going to celebrate this with you. I think people are well-intended. I, I think most people are well-intended. I think most Christians are well-intended. But you can be well-intended and be ignorant and cause a lot of damage. I need to be in the word of God in every area of my life as well as you. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be in this regard countercultural, and we're going to be able to stand and withstand the challenges that are before us, we must know the word of God. But secondly, I want to take you to a passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God by unrighteous? He means people that, that don't realize that they're sinful and need a savior and come to Christ. And then he gives kind of a a laundry list. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now I look at, go back to that page for a second, JD. Sorry. I look at that list and say, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm on that list. I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So let's pack it up and go home and try to soothe our pain somehow before we die. But it doesn't stop. That goes to verse 11, which is really good news. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What you need to see there is not the first page. You can go to the first page and go, oh yeah, see Tom, there's all those people out there practicing all that bad sex. They're going to get theirs, right? That's because we'd like to think self-righteously. God doesn't want us to think self-righteously. It's an abomination to God for you and to me to think self-righteously. God wants us to think in terms of humility and grace and salvation. And you need the cross of Jesus, and I need the cross of Jesus just as much as any other person walking around on this planet. 
But we tend to get in church and we tend to get around other Christian people and we tend to forget about how ugly our sin really is. And we tend to excuse our sinfulness. And we tend to um, elevate the sinfulness of others. You know, I, I happen to agree with the gay community in part of their anger towards the church. Because they say, you guys are hypocrites. You guys, you guys talk out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, on the one term, you tell us that, that what we practice is wrong and, and evil, but you don't talk about heterosexual sin ever. You know, you know couples that are, have one-night stands or, or are practicing sex outside of marriage, and yet the Bible says that those things are just as wrong. You know what? They're right. They're right to call us out on that. There has to be a sense in our lives where, where we come to an understanding of our sin that, that doesn't drive us to despair, but this drives us to a humility and a grace and a, and a desire that others would know Christ. And we read that verse and go, such were some of us. And we go, amen, that's right. But Jesus changed everything. We're not preaching sexuality, friends. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've gotten them backwards. And we've offended a lot of people. And they're right to be offended. Jesus calls us not to self-righteousness, but to humility and grace and salvation. Uh, a book that everybody should read. And I'm not going to put it on the screen. It will be in a bibliography. I'm writing, I'm writing a paper that I'm going to share with you all, hopefully by next week. There's a book out by a guy named Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill wrote a book called Washed and Waiting in 2010. And you ought to read that book. Wesley Hill is a, is a man who struggles with same-sex attraction. And he's a disciple of Jesus. And I read the book and I started reading. I was a little skeptical when I started reading it. But when I finished, I was just broken. And I'm, and I'm lit, reading this guy's life, and he's, he's tell, talking about how he wants to follow Jesus and, and how that's difficult for him and how the church has treated him. And I realized that I'm reading a book by a guy who's a much stronger believer than me, but who most people wouldn't necessarily even want in their church. There's something wrong with that, friends. There, there, there's something out of balance with our understanding of our own sinfulness. Paul says as such were some of us. That's right, because Jesus wants us to think about grace and compassion. And then, then just to reinforce that a little bit, Matthew 22. Uh, this is a, probably a passage you've heard before. One of the lawyers asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hinge all of the law and the prophets. So go back to what the law and the prophets said about our sexuality, right? And understand that it's given because God loves us and God cares for us. And he understands that when we receive that love the way we're supposed to, here's what happens. Our, our minds and our hearts and our souls long for him. They long to be with him. I was cutting my grass yesterday afternoon on my lawnmower in my backyard. And I was so sad about what, I'm, what I've been reading and what I, the, the struggle that people are going through on this topic of sexuality. I said, God, I'm so homesick. I just kind of want to be home. Not in my backyard, cut my grass. Although I like my John Deere ride mower. Um, <laughs> this is, sometimes it's too hard. How do, you, how do you tell people that what you have for them is good and gracious and kind. Excuse me, when the church spends all its time beating people over the head with certain sins and ignoring others. And he didn't take me home yesterday. I'm here this morning. <laughs> didn't, fall off my, didn't fall off my lawnmower. 
but I can't love God and hate my fellow man. And I, and I changed my own notes after I, I wrote these notes, and I'll say this. I can't love God and be indifferent to my fellow man. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of ire over human sexuality in our culture. And I would say that the main thing we probably want to do is just disengage, run and hide, just let it be somebody else's issue, somebody else's struggle. Because if you stand on the Word of God, there, folks are going to be upset with you on some level. You have to understand that. There will be people who hate you because of what you say, what you believe. And so it's easier to just kind of circle the wagons and hunker down and wait till Jesus comes back or we die and go to be with him. But we're in the second half of a sermon series called Branch Out. Jesus didn't tell us that it would be safe. Jesus didn't tell us that it would be simple. But he told us he's good and he's enough. Are we willing to branch out in this particular topic? Step into the world and engage the gospel for the sake of people's souls, even when perhaps they're wanting to go the opposite direction. That's what Jesus did for you and me. How could we not do that for others? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, as difficult as it may be for us to hear. Lord, I, even in our small church, there are, this struggle exists. We can pretend it's not there and we can, we can ignore it or we can engage in a loving and gracious way where we stand on your scripture. We seek to care well for people in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for your spirit for your wisdom to lead us in this, that we wouldn't run away, that we wouldn't bury our heads in the sand, that we wouldn't be fearful, but rather that we would trust in you, that we would speak the truth in love, that we would be warm and welcoming to anybody who walks through our do- the doors of our lives, not just the doors of this building. And that as you've given us this gift of human sexuality, you've given it to us with parameters, Lord, that we would trust you and that we would allow our lives to be molded and shaped by your word, not by our culture. We pray that you would be glorified in this and that you would strengthen our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.